Claire and I were talking just before we left the house this morning. We said it feels like quite a short advent this year uh, because this Sunday feels like it, it could be uh, the first Sunday of Advent, but because of the way the calendar falls, uh, we're not quite there yet. Uh, next Sunday, the, the run-up to Christmas, uh, that season uh, really kicks off. We're continuing for the time being with this series of studies in John's Gospel. I, I'd really encourage you to have uh, that passage open uh, again today. So um, sometimes I encourage you more vigorously than others, uh, particularly when the passages are a wee bit more complicated and harder to follow. And today, I think it's a little bit like that. It's a chunk of Jesus' teaching, and it's pretty dense. Uh, I'm going to try and just give you a little bit of a sense of the flow of it rather than uh, trying to, to deal with absolutely everything that he says. Uh, but if you had that open, page 1068, uh, that would be very, very helpful. Let's pray. Father God, we come to your word and already we've said that it, it may need uh, some time and some effort on our part to, to begin to understand this. Uh, Lord, we know that if we're to understand you and your plans for us, we always need uh, your help and the help of your spirit, whether a passage appears simple or complicated. So we pray you'd come here this morning and you'd give us uh, some help, help us to understand what Jesus' words recorded for us those many years ago, what they, they mean for us today uh, as we try to, to follow Jesus or try to discern whether he is someone that we should be following. Lord, come and speak to us all, we pray. Amen. Last summer, the atheistic author Philip Pullman published uh, a book, The Good Man Jesus and the Scoundrel Christ. Um, it's a book in which he imagines Jesus to have a twin brother called Christ. The Jesus character we recognize, he's a traveling preacher, someone who falls under suspicion of both the, the Roman and the Jewish authorities. Christ is his less gifted but his loving brother who follows him around and secretly he writes down uh, Jesus' teachings uh, so that people later will be able to learn about Jesus' ideas. And the story is written from the viewpoint of, of Christ. He's constantly in awe of his, his brother and his wise preacherly teachings. It's a book that admittedly in quite a creative way actually revisits ground that's been covered many times before. So Pullman's following the footsteps of many skeptical scholars, and he assumes that there's a, a radical difference between Jesus of Nazareth, the actual historical figure, and Jesus the Christ, the one we read about in the, the Christian Bible, the one who's worshiped as the very son of God. So Pullman and the, the liberal Bible scholars, they're set they've set out to convince us that Jesus of Nazareth was a great human teacher. They, they won't deny that. But they'll argue that he never thought of himself as God and that his followers got the whole God thing going after his death. It's the kind of discussion that 
could and, and probably should get us all thinking a little bit. Is Jesus really the Christ? Was he really God among us during those years? Does he have any authority to speak into our lives today? If he's not God among us, and if he has no authority to speak into our lives today, then frankly, we might as well patronize each other with the benediction now and, and go on home. And if we do, we'll be in good time to get the kettle on and have a cup of tea ready before Country File starts at 20 past 12. If he isn't God, if he doesn't have any authority over our lives, this kind of a gathering is a waste of time. Just for the record, I am convinced that Jesus is the Christ, that he's the son of God, that he's the one who came into this world to give us new life. And the gospels, as we'll see in a moment, show us clearly that Jesus understood himself in that way. Even the people around him understood Jesus' claims well enough that he was claiming to be God. If those claims weren't clear, I don't think he would have had the hatred that he had from the Jewish leaders. If those claims weren't clear, Jesus would never have been nailed to a Roman cross. It was very clear in Jesus' time that he understood himself to be the Christ, the Son of God. Otherwise, his life wouldn't have ended as it did. Of course, you might say, well, Christoph, you're basing that comment on, on the Gospels. It's very possible that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John have entirely fabricated everything that they're liars. And by the way, if that's the case, John, whom we're following just now, isn't just a liar, he's also a hypocrite because John talks a lot in his Gospel about the importance of truth. Nobody more in the New Testament. So if this guy talking about truth is pushing a whole raft of lies, he's not only a liar, but also a hypocrite. The interesting thing is that very few people take that view about the biblical gospels, that they're entirely fabricated. There's simply too much historical evidence to verify the reliability of the gospels and their transmission for that to be the case. The gospels have to be taken seriously on their own terms. And then we have to come to terms with what we read there. So let's get into this passage today. We have people here struggling with the question, is Jesus God? Okay, try to read the gospel forwards. And what I mean by that is put everything that you know out of the road. Put yourself in the shoes of these Jewish religious leaders of the time uh, the, the community that saw these things and heard these things that Jesus said. And, and let's see uh, what happens here. So a couple of weeks ago in chapter five, those early verses, we learned of an occasion when Jesus healed uh, a man who'd been lying by a pool. And our passage today really records the, the fallout from that. The religious leaders come to Jesus. We need just a tiny bit more background to explain why there was a conflict John tells us in chapter five, verse nine, the second half of the verse, that the healing took place on the Sabbath. So that's the Jewish holy day. The man, when he was healed by Jesus, rolls up his mat, puts it under his arm, and he, he starts to walk home when the Sabbath police spot him and, and catch him. Oh, you can't do that. 
You can't be walking around with a rolled up mat under your arm, it's the Sabbath. So the guy, when he's confronted, does exactly what you would do and what I would do. He blames someone else. He says, it was the guy who healed me. He told me to do it. And, and they ask him, who, who was it healed you? I, I don't know. It's, it reads quite, quite down to earth. But later, at some point, the, the healed man bumps into Jesus again and he goes back and he tells the Jewish leaders, it was Jesus. He's the one who healed me. Now that's a lovely moment for the leaders, isn't it? One of the guys of their community who's been lying 38 years in his back's been healed and they've discovered who the healer is. So they get to call the healer in to throw a civic reception to celebrate what he has done, to talk to him about how more of this healing might be experienced in their community. It's, it's just a great moment for the religious leaders. Wrong. John tells us in verse 16 that because Jesus did this stuff on the Sabbath, the Jews begin to persecute him. Doesn't matter, Jesus, that you're changing people's lives. You broke one of our rules. We're coming after you. I said a moment ago that our passage then deals with what Jesus has to say to these Jewish religious leaders. And he makes a very extraordinary claim. Verse 17, the first bit of, the first bit of the chapter really deals with Jesus' incredible claims from verse 16 to 23. So verse 17, he says, my father is always at work to this very day and I am working too. He calls God his father. What's the big deal? Sure, we did it earlier in the service. Our father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. There's something more going on here, though, when you look closely. John tells us in verse 18 that for this reason, the Jews tried all the harder to kill him. We have never tried to kill anybody here for praying the Lord's Prayer. What was it about what Jesus was saying in that moment that, that had this, this reaction coming from the Jewish leaders? Jesus didn't say, Our Father, in the way that you and I did this morning. He said, My Father. He didn't speak of himself as a Son of God. Jesus is the Son of God in his own mind. And the Jewish leaders didn't miss the implications. John makes it explicit. He says this guy is making himself equal with God. Now what does Jesus do in that moment when he understands that they think he's making himself equal with God? What does he do? Does he do as the good Jesus of Philip Pullman's imagination would do? Of course not, guys, you've got this wrong. I'm not God. Sorry, there's been a crossed wire there, a wrong end of the stick. I'm not God, bit of a mix up, let's back up. No, verse 19, Jesus just builds on what he's already been saying about God being his father. I tell you the truth, the son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees the father doing because whatever the father does, the son also does. In the next five verses, he just builds on this. 
builds up a huge, extraordinary claim. Let me point it out quickly to you, five different parts of it. First, Jesus says that his actions are God's actions. He can only do what he sees his father doing. That's why Jesus heals on the Sabbath. God, when he set this created order uh, up and running, put healing processes in place. They don't pause for the Sabbath. God heals on the Sabbath. God heals every Sabbath. And Jesus' son just joins in. God's healing. Why wouldn't I be healing? Second, Jesus knows what God knows. He says in verse 20, the father loves the son and shows him all he does. Nobody in the world sees it all. Even the smartest people see only a fraction of what there is to see and to know. Jesus is different. He sees it all because his father shows it to him. Third, Jesus is like his father God because he holds life and death in his hands. Look at verse 21. Just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the son gives life to whom he's pleased to give it. Folks, we have life because somebody gave it to us. God did. Jesus is in an entirely different place. He can give life to whom he chooses. The fourth aspect of Jesus' outrageous claim, he claims to act with God's authority. Look at verse 22. The father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgments to the son. Jesus Christ is the one who pronounces all men guilty or innocent. And, and we'll see that one day in a, in a final judgment when he passes his perfect judgment on the world. But just in case the penny still isn't dropping with us, the last thing, the last part of Jesus' claim is that he claims the worship that's due to God. Look at verse 23. That all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Worship me the way you worship God, is Jesus' point. Do you see now why they're ready to kill him? The people who grew up for centuries and millennia saying, you shall have no other gods before me. Do you see now how it's impossible to live with this idea that Jesus was an ordinary human being who was an inspirational teacher, but whose disciples later on came along and said that he was somehow God? It's actually impossible to take that view if you take anything of Jesus seriously. Jesus didn't make it, he made it impossible for you to, to say that you uh, didn't believe that he was divine or that he didn't believe that he was divine. Belfast-born writer C.S. Lewis, he puts it brilliantly in his uh, classic Mere Christianity. People often say, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That's one thing we must not say. A man who's merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He'd either be a lunatic on a level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he'd be the devil of hell. 
you must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else he's a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit on him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let's not have any more of this patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He hasn't left that open to us. That bit of C.S. Lewis's teaching has been compressed in, in a way that I find easier to remember. And that is that Jesus was mad, bad, or God. He's either nuts or a liar, or he is who he says he is. So Jesus makes this extraordinary claim about himself in this passage that he's the son of God, that he's worthy of the worship that we offer to God. As we read this passage and, and more so as we read on in the gospel accounts, we see that the, the religious leaders of Jesus' day chose to, to reject his claims. Later in the chapter, Jesus deals with some of the evidence that they have missed, that they have had to reject as they've rejected him. And people still reject much the same evidence today. What was the evidence? Well, we see it in the, the last part of the chapter or, or our passage from verse 30 through to 47. Jesus mentioned four strands of evidence uh, very quickly. First, there are his own claims. He says in verse 31, if I testify about myself, my testimony isn't valid. Jesus did testify about himself. He did claim to be uh, the son of God, to be the Messiah among us. But he knew that that doesn't really uh, hold much sway, say in a court of law or isn't very persuasive. So for example, if somebody burst in this morning into our service or just one of you stood up and you said, here I am, I'm the son of God and I've come to be with you. Our first reaction wouldn't be, wow, that's amazing. How can we join in and be part of this? Our first reaction would be, this guy's nuts. Can somebody make a few phone calls quickly to some of the, the local uh, places for people uh, who are, are mentally ill, just to check that there isn't somebody that uh, got out last night? So Jesus understands that that a person's testimony isn't valid on their own terms, and it certainly wasn't in Jewish law. So he says in verse 32, there's another who testifies in my favor, and I know that his testimony about me is valid. He's talking, of course, about his father God. There's a second strand of evidence, and it's the witness of men and women who believe. Jesus mentions John the Baptist in verse 33. But he knows again that John can't prove fully and finally that he's God. He says as much in verse 34, not that I accept human testimony, but I mention it that you might be saved. The witness of believing people isn't conclusive evidence today, never was, never will be. But it's still important. I mention it that you might be saved. Maybe you're skeptical, but you've got friends whom you respect. 
who seem to be bright in other areas of their lives and they believe this stuff about Jesus being God's son. If you don't believe, you need to be sure that either these guys have been deceived or that for some reason they're deceiving you. Third strand of evidence, he cites uh, the evidence of his own life and works. He says in verse 36, I have a testimony weightier than that of John for the very work that the Father has given me to finish and which I'm doing testifies that the Father sent me. Remember what's going on here. This conversation's happening as a direct aftermath of the poolside healing. This man's been lying in a mat for 38 years. Jesus says, don't you realize these aren't just tricks that I do. This isn't light entertainment. These are signs. They're God pointers to show you that I am God among you. Well, you might say, um, that's just my problem with Christianity. By now in 2013, we all know that it's unscientific to believe in miracles. No, it's not. Good science would never say miracles are impossible. Somebody must have made them up. Good science would say events like this are highly abnormal, highly extraordinary. And if these events really did take place, then the person concerned must be highly extraordinary. Uh, don't lose the, the flow of what ha is happening here in the chapter. Jesus has made extraordinary claims for himself. He says that people have rejected that and have rejected a lot of evidence with it. A final strand of evidence that he points to is the Bible. He says in verse 39, you diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me. Here's some irony for us that we maybe need to pay attention to in a crowd like this. Nobody studied the Bible more than these guys. These are the academic theological department of their day. So it seems that it's possible to study the Bible and yet to miss the whole point. Whether we do that in, a, in an academic setting looking for master's degrees or looking for doctorates, or whether we do it in a church looking for the, the self-satisfaction of calling, calling ourselves evangelical or, or a Bible-based church, doesn't really matter. Bible study doesn't lead to life. You might be shocked to hear me say that. Somebody who makes such a big deal of trying to read and teach the Bible, but it doesn't. Bible study doesn't lead to life unless it leads us to Jesus Christ. We've seen Jesus' extraordinary claim in verses 16 to 23. We've seen him present the evidence to back up his claim in verses 30 through to the end of the chapter. Let's close by thinking for a second about where this leaves us. It leaves us in the same place as it did Jesus' first hearers, and that's with a, a crucial, critical decision about Jesus. 
Look at verse 24. I tell you the truth. Whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. What's he talking about crossing over from death to life? It sounds like something that happens when you die, but that doesn't make sense of what he says. Whenever we die, some of us are struggling to work out. We would be moving then from being alive to, to some sort of an afterlife that we're not clear about. But in the Greek text here, Jesus is talking about lifting us out of death and into life. It's as though he's talking about something that happens before we die. It happens in that moment that we do begin to respond to him. It seems that he's talking about two spiritual spheres, one that's, that's converging towards extinction and one that's opening out before us into to newness of life. And the implication here is that that by nature we all start out in that, that shrinking, dying world. If our situation doesn't change, then we're doomed to die. But, but something has changed and can change for us because Jesus has come. And he's the one, we've seen it so many times already in John's gospel, he's the one who has life in him. And he's the one who gives life to those who receive it from him. He's come, he says, to give us life to the full. And as we'll see later in John's gospel, Jesus is the interface between these two worlds, this dead world and dying world, and this living and fullness of life world. He is the interface. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I'm the only way and the only truth and the only life and the only point of intersection between living in a dying world towards a, an eternal death and a beautiful eternal life for which I was always created. We've learned a lot about Jesus so far in John's gospel. And here today we've seen that he's God's son, equal with his father, and that he can give life. He's the door to life. And it begs a question. Have you walked through have you been lifted from death into life? Let's pray. Lord, your word, you say, is like a double-edged sword. 
and today it's, it's made uh, an incisive cut. It's cut away some of the, the confusion that we sometimes have about Jesus. The idea that he might be just a really good man who lived among us and said lots of inspiring things. Lord, you've shown us in your word that that reality, that possibility simply isn't available to us. You show us that Jesus is your son. Jesus, you're clear that you're one with the Father and that you deserve the worship that this Father and the Spirit together with you enjoy. Lord, help us each one to see it and to act in the light of it, to see that we either accept Jesus and bow the knee before him or reject God come among us. God's Son and the Savior of the world. Lord, I pray that by your Spirit, you'd open each one of us, open our eyes to, to see Jesus. Amen.